I had the, uh, the privilege this week of spending a couple of days with about 20 pastors from different churches which are part of our larger church family. And it was a real privilege uh, just to hear some of their stories and to tell something of our story as a church as well. One of the themes that really came through as we were talking together around the room was God's incredible provision, uh, particularly for buildings. And we know that's one of the things that we're praying for uh, as City Church. Uh, and whilst we love this building, I'm very grateful to God for this facility. Obviously, we're having to make uh, more room. And uh, wouldn't it be great if God provided something for us? And just to hear the stories uh, from other parts of the country for churches just like ours, where God miraculously provides, was a huge provocation to me and to us, I hope, to pray again and to keep praying, ask you to join with us as elders and leaders through the church to ask God, will you please give us something that is ours? Uh, whether that's offices and training facilities, whether that's a, a large building to meet in, but God knows. Uh, but we think, wow, how could we do that? Bristol is such an expensive place to live. Yes, it is, and God owns all of it. So, uh, so let's keep praying and asking and believing uh, that God would do that for us as well. We're going to finish our series today, our series we've been looking through the last, uh, the last few months where we've, we've called Ask God, and we've been asking uh, questions of God and of the Bible and of kind of Christianity in general. Here are the big questions. We kind of did a survey early uh, on asking what questions would you ask? If you had God before you, what would you ask him? And some of those were, if, how do I even know God exists? Uh, Jamie Finley from, the, from our um, Bradley Stokes site did a great job answering that question. Then we asked, uh, does God want to limit my freedom? And then we asked a number of other questions as well. If you'd like to listen back to those talks, you can do that on our website. Uh, just click on uh, the, the, the kind of media section and you can download or listen live to those talks. Today we're going to flip that on its head a bit. We've been saying, what would I ask of God? Well, here's the question for this morning. What does God ask of us? What does God ask of you? What does God ask of me? Um, so with all the questions we've directed to him, what kind of questions might he direct towards us? And we're going to look at the Bible to answer that question. Not surprisingly, it is a church after all. Uh, so uh, if you have a Bible or you've got a phone or a tablet or something, I'm going to read one verse from Micah chapter 6. Micah is in the Old Testament. Micah's known as a minor prophet, which I always think yeah, that's a bit harsh, just a minor and major prophets. That just means that the, the kind of overall content is less. The number of pages in the book is smaller, so he becomes a minor prophet. Not that what he said was of less importance than any of the others. And what prophets would do is prophets would speak in the Old Testament mostly to the Israelite nation, to this nation that were drawn together by God to be God's people. And, and prophets would speak on behalf of God to the people. And quite often over the years and the centuries, God's people would drift away from the heart of what God uh, wanted them to do and to be and from the heart of who God was. And the prophets would be raised up and speak to the nation. And they would bring correction, sometimes encouragement, sometimes warnings about what would happen if they continued in the path away from God. And Micah is one such prophet, a minor prophet. And uh, Micah speaks to the Israelite nation. Let's read verse 6, uh, verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you, or what does the Lord ask of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'll read that again. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? That you act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So as we finish this series, we're looking at these three things. This is what God's asking of you. He's asking that of us as a church, but also actually asks it of humanity in general. He puts this there, saying, this is what I expect. This is, this is how it should be. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. We'll break that into three sections. The verse sometimes does that nice and neatly for you, and this one does this for us. So we'll look at justice, at mercy, and humility Uh, each in turn. Firstly, and we did this, of course, a few weeks ago when we asked the question of God, what about justice? If God is a good God, why is there so much injustice in the world? And we tried to answer that question. Again, you can go and find the answer we gave uh, listening on the website. We won't spend long here in this, except that God does expect us to act justly. To act, of course, is something you have to do. It's a doing word, a verb, to act justly. Not just that you think about justice, or you like justice, or you prefer justice, but that you do justice. God's saying to you, to me today, do justice. Do it. Be a people who do, who actively pursue justice where you are, where God's put you, in your home, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, your college, your university, wherever you are, do justice. So you want to know what God's asking of you? Do justice. Justice. You might think, well, okay, fair enough. Um, I don't know a great deal about justice and injustice. And I think, by and large, you might be right. Our culture, and you, again, you, some of you are going to put your hands up saying, hang on, my experience has been different. But I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Our culture mostly, our society mostly is fairly just. We have a pretty decent, mostly trustworthy police force. I'm looking at a policeman or an ex-policeman right now, and so I'm thinking, yes, I think mostly the police do a good job, most of the time. Sometimes, of course not, but mostly we can trust them. Mostly our judicial system, the key is in the word there, our justice system does work towards justice. And we should be very grateful and thankful for that. And, you know, if you're thinking that injustice is that, you know, I thought it was a 30 I thought it was a 40, but actually it was a 30, and I got a ticket. That's not really injustice. Or if you think, you know, have you seen the price of turkeys in Tesco's? That's not really injustice. And so we sometimes don't know a great deal about injustice. But other cultures do. Other nations live with injustice all the time. Right now in the world today. And many do, actually. I'm going to give you a quick example to... Uh, kind of illustrate what I mean. My, my sister, as some of you, many of you probably know, I have two sisters. My younger sister uh, lives in, in Bolivia. She lives in a big city called Santa Cruz, which is right in the middle of a rainforest in the middle of Bolivia. It's a, a, a fantastic and terrible place. It's very hot and sticky. Uh, and the culture, the society is not just. Uh, it's a, a, a society that often uh, bri- bribery is kind of common. So to get anything much done, you have to pay a bribe. And so that goes right way down, layer by layer by layer, through the culture. In fact, to the point where, if you're playing, paying a toll for your car, you wouldn't expect to pay the ticket value. You'd have to pay a bribe. So everywhere, bribery is everywhere. And actually, as a believer, as a Christian, it's quite hard to navigate that kind of system. It's quite a challenge to, to know how do you do that 
uh, because if you don't pay the bribes, mostly things, at the very least, take forever and forever, and maybe they never get done. Now, that's the backdrop. My sister uh, and her husband uh, lead a church in Santa Cruz, but they've also adopted a number of Bolivian children. And on, in this process, a few years ago, they were going to adopt a beautiful little girl called Lily. And Lily had been abandoned by her family. She had no parents and nowhere to go. And so my sister and husband, David, they pursued the legal process of which there are in Bolivia. There is a legal process in Bolivia. They pursued this. They did the right things. They got the right paperwork signed. They pursued it as far as they could. And they got to the point where the judges had signed, yep, this child is now going to be yours. Everything was done. And the day comes to pick Lily up from the orphanage where she had been living. And Lily was gone. She wasn't there. And she had been sold. She just, they just sold her. And if you, and maybe one day you will, if you knew my sister, she didn't take that lying down. Uh, she... <laughs> She, she flipped, I mean, she lost, she lost it, as you can imagine, she flipped. And they then had to go and find her and get her back. And they did, they did manage to do that, uh, which is wonderful. And now she's part of, of her family, part of our family, which is a wonderful story. But so many societies live with that and much worse now, today, every day, all the time. They're living with levels of injustice, levels of unfairness that we just don't really grasp because we don't know what that means and so when God says act justly he's speaking to all of those societies too and he's saying to us who don't quite face that there's probably stuff you can do about some of that as well now to act justly to do justice is both a negative and a positive and I'll quickly run through these because we covered it a little bit a few weeks ago so how do you negatively do justice? Well, there's things to resist, aren't there? There are injustices to resist. And here are a few of them. Resist this. When the wealthy and powerful use their wealth and power, use their privilege to oppress those who don't have wealth and power. We should resist that as believers. Because God says, do justice. Do fairness. Actively pursue fairness. You have to resist that. We should resist systems which, present, which prevent the, power, the powerless from improving their lot in life. We should resist that. It's not just you just give handouts. That's not, that's not just what he's asking. He's saying, actually, we need to resist systems that work that way. We should do that as believers. Actually, that often was the point of these minor prophets when they spoke to the nation built into the fabric of the Israelite nation, built into the laws, the way they lived was fairness and kindness to people who couldn't get on in life, who's lot, who, who'd had a difficult time. And they built it in so that they, we talked about gleaning a few months ago. Don't harvest to the very edge of your fields. Leave some. Now, there was still work to be done. The, those who didn't have fields of their own, they had to come and harvest what was left. But they were supposed to leave it. And when they stopped doing those sorts of things, God had a problem. He said, listen, you are not doing justice. And justice is fairness to the powerless. We need to, we need to resist attitudes which dehumanize people. 
which lump people together as a job lot and say, that's that kind of person, that's that kind of person, maybe that's that race of people, that's that sort of person. We should resist that because it's not right. And it's not right because the fundamental thing that God says about each of us is what? Made in God's image. That's the first thing God says. So anything that is less than that, anything that squeezes people into a category that's less than made in God's image is unfair in God's size, is unjust. And we need to resist those kinds of things. And then we also, and this is maybe is more subtle, we should resist cultural trends that reinforce all of the above. Our culture is going through our society, our whole country is going through something of a turmoil, a tumultuous moment right now with the whole Brexit thing. What's going to happen? Now, what can happen in the midst of all of that turmoil is that cultural trends can creep in without us noticing. We should be wary of those kind of things and resist where we can. So that's negatively. Sometimes we have to resist things. Positively doing justice is to actively help the disadvantaged. That's what you do. We've talked a lot about that. There are challenges with that. I'd like to just recommend this book to you called When Helping Hurts. Uh, the subtitle is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. There are challenges when you try and actively do justice, when you try and be kind, when you try and be fair, when you try and help people, because sometimes we do it without thinking. Sometimes we do it without thinking enough. And there are all kinds of stories of people who would try and do the right thing and actually it turns out not to be as helpful as you thought it might be. There's, for instance, the issue of good stewardship of your own resources. The Bible's full of teaching about steward what you have and do it well. And we need to do that. You need to steward what you have and do it well. In other words, if you see, you go to some countries, you see extreme poverty, and you're actually, actually the first time I went to South Africa, and I saw poverty like I'd never seen before, I emptied all the money I had in my pockets, and I think I'd just got off the plane, so it was probably quite a lot of money. I just gave it to the first person, gave all of it to the first person I saw who didn't seem to have anywhere to live. And I thought, oh, I just can't, I have to do that. What I didn't realize was that, you know, he's living on the street with his family, but everyone's watching. And now he's got arms full, or at least hands full of cash that's not worth as much as it is here, so it was, you know, it seemed like more than it, than it was. That was giving foolishly. I could well have put that guy in danger because other people are watching what's going on. You need to be thoughtful when you give. You think about what you're doing. Be wise. Listen, the best thing to do in a church like this, ask someone who knows more than you. <laughs> Praise God, we have lots of people who are used to doing this, who've got years of helping under their belts. We should ask them if we have an idea. Ask them, is this a good idea? Could you just help me? I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think about it? It's part of being a family, actually. Ask someone who's, who's made a few mistakes before you so that we might uh, make less. I'd like to give that away. So if anyone would like that after the meeting, come and ask me. You can have that copy of When Helping Hurts after the meeting. So doing justice is both a negative thing and a positive thing. It both has negative aspects to it and positive aspects to it. Maybe for some... You're thinking, well, that's all a bit far from me. But what about as a family? Maybe as a connect group. Maybe as a group of friends. You might think, okay, in the next few weeks, in the run up to Christmas, I'm gonna, I want to start doing something like that. What about being kind to a neighbor? Start there. Just do an act of kindness to someone. 
Just start there, beginning to show something of a response to God's word. Just put it, do it, settle in your heart now. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Don't, you know, might not even know them, but I'm, and they might not even know it was me. I'm going to show, an, I'm going to do an act of kindness because of what God says, because it's his kingdom and not mine. Let's move on to the second aspect of this verse in Micah. God says, love mercy. Love mercy. Now, here's the thing. We have no problem loving mercy when mercy is directed towards us. Yeah, I love, if I get let off, I love it. Don't you? Oh, it's great. I got let off. Isn't that wonderful? Pleased with it. Not a problem. But God is saying, love mercy. Love it. Delight in mercy. Do mercy. And that suddenly puts it in a different light. Mercy, just briefly, is when a punishment or penalty, which is fully deserved, is withheld. That's, that's what mercy is. You've received mercy. If you deserved, if you had a fine to pay, and you get let off that fine, you've been showed mercy. But let's just be clear, because God's asking us to love mercy, what mercy actually does for you or for me. If I'm in the midst of a, a situation like this, if you owed me something and I let you off, I pay. The debt still has to be paid, and I pay. And God says, love that. Love that. Love it. Love mercy. And I'm like, whoa, hang on. <laughs> I, I'm fine when it's directed towards me, but you say love it? Make, it. make it part of the culture? Make it part of the family? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Love mercy. And then you might say, well, hang on. We tend to love beautiful things. Where's the beauty in that? Where's the beauty and mercy in, in that moment? It just seems like I pay for this. It seems like I lose out. And actually, we need to look into the New Testament. We need to put our, as it were, New Testament glasses on and look at this passage again because the beauty of mercy is Jesus. The beauty of mercy is Jesus. Certainly for those who believe in him. For those who say, I'm a Christian, you see mercy in Jesus. Jesus himself said this, he said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And that sounds a bit like a transaction, doesn't it? So if I'm merciful, then God will be merciful to me. Sounds like I have to act first. Well, we'll look at another story in a moment to see that there is something else to learn about mercy before that. Well, how does this work? Well, firstly, mercy kind of begets mercy, doesn't it? And so if you're merciful to someone, they're likely to pass that on to other people. There's a very trivial example of this. I drive down the Gloucester Road most days, and it's busy, and I'm usually late. So I'm trying to get somewhere, and there's everyone trying to get in from the side roads. And sometimes you, if I let someone in or someone lets me in, I'm more likely to let someone else in uh, around me because I've been shown mercy, so I'm likely to show mercy or kindness to somebody else. That's a trivial example. And you might think, that sounds a bit like karma, Andy. Are you, really, are you preaching karma? You send goodness out there and goodness comes back to you. No, this is God. God is merciful. And the examples that we use will become less trivial as we continue. God is demonstrating what he is like when he shows mercy to us. He's saying, that's what I'm like. I'm a merciful God. I'm a kind God. But more important than that, being merciful ourselves 
helps us understand more of God's mercy towards us. Because that is where it began, in fact. It began with God. To grasp this incredible truth about his kingdom. That I've been invited into a family, into a kingdom, into a culture where mercy reigns over judgment. And it's beautiful. And yes, we should love it. And Jesus told a story to help us understand something about mercy. Matthew 18 and verse 23. I'll read it to you. Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's years and years and years worth of wages. He was brought to the king. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and that all he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything I owe. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, just a small amount of money. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back everything you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, this master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owes. This is how my Father in heaven will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Showing mercy demonstrates we understand that we have been shown mercy. In fact, a persistent unwillingness to show mercy to others, to forgive, just to forgive, to say, yeah, that, what, what you said there, that hurt, but I, I forgive you. A persistent unwillingness to do that just demonstrates I've not really understood it myself. I don't think in this story, that first servant, he didn't understand mercy, even though he'd been demonstrated so much mercy. And listen, it takes mercy to enter God's kingdom. You have to receive mercy. You can't do it on your own. You can't. You have to understand mercy. You've got to get it. You've got to get that's the gospel. You've got to understand that's what he's done for you. And God says that's how it should be with you. I owed God a debt I couldn't pay. All my wrongdoing in thought and word and deed, which is so often directed towards others, actually ultimately directed towards God as father of all. You sin against my family, you sin against me. He's our father. So what does he do? And I, I've fallen short of all his standards. How do I pay this debt? I can't. And yet he offers to take the blame himself and grant me freedom from my debt. All he says to you is go do the same. Go share this wonderful mercy with those around you. Go demonstrate this kingdom do I want to tell his story with my life? Do you want to tell his story with your life?
do you want to demonstrate, do you want to be a living metaphor for this kingdom, for this king, for this attitude? What are you willing to pay for that? What are you willing to give to be that living metaphor? Are you willing to take the debt yourself? Are you willing to say, hey, it's gone, you're free? Remembering the huge debt that you have been forgiven yourself. That's sometimes important that we worship. We remind ourselves, it's almost like we're drinking mercy in as we worship God, remembering the things he's done, remembering the debt that you've been forgiven that you couldn't pay. And as I do that, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives me the energy, the power to go forgive others. Freely you've received, freely give. Freely give. A culture, a community, a family like that is so attractive and compelling. So attractive. Well, you say, how, how does it even work? And the only answer as to how it even works is to say it's because of him. You have to, the only, the only answer that makes any sense is to say, well, you consider the cross. Look at the huge debt that he's paid, that my debt is paid, it's gone. He's forgiven me. So of course I want to forgive others. It's a beautiful thing. It is a thing of beauty and joy and wonder. And I want to be part of a family that rejoices in that. God says, love mercy, love mercy. And then the final thing that Micah says to these people as he says this, he says, walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God is humble. God is humble. That's mind-blowing. If you think about who God is, all-powerful, all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. It's nothing that happens. Every hair on your head, he knows. Before a word is on your lips, he knows it completely. He made the stars. God is humble. God is humble. Listen, he doesn't say this, walk humbly before your God, and a kind of get down and walk humbly. It says walk humbly with your God. Because he's a humble God. Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says this of himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and humble of heart, says Jesus. Jesus also said this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is a humble God. Paul writes, writes this about, about Jesus' attitude in Philippians 2, a famous passage. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't leverage his power and position for himself. He didn't do that. He could have. You or I, I, I might be so tempted to do that. If I was given that amount of power, that amount of authority, we see it everywhere around us, don't we? We leverage it for our own advantage. That is not our God. He didn't do that. What did he do? 
Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he was found in human likeness. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You might say, well, humility is all very good, but what does it achieve? Does anything actually get done if we just humble? If I keep preferring others, does anything actually happen? Would we, do we get on? Well, did Jesus achieve anything? He was humble of heart. His attitude was like this. He was like, and look, what, did he achieve anything? Yes, of course he did. Changed the world. The most influential man who ever lived. And he was humble of heart. And he says to us, walk humbly with your God. Be the same. An impossible task, actually, unless God lives in you. But wonderfully, that is what the gospel is. God says, I'll come and, I'll come and dwell with you. I'll come and live in you. I'll be part of you. I'll speak to you. I'll fill you with my own spirit and my own power to do the things that are impossible for you. Just as we draw to a close, let's just look at what the humble heart looks like. What might that be like in a family like this? The humble heart is open-handed and open-hearted. The humble heart is willing just to give. It knows it's been given much and it's willing to share what it has with others. It's also open-hearted. It's willing not to put walls up around itself. The humble heart lets others in. It lets others see it. It's not too proud to let people see what's really happening inside. The humble heart puts others first before itself, just like Jesus did. The humble heart rejoices in the success of others and seeks the blessing of others in an, as an end of itself. That's what humble hearts do. They seek the blessing of others. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. You know, sometimes it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Imagine that someone close to you gets an inheritance. Rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The humble heart rejoices in the success of others. The humble heart listens more than it speaks. I have to put my hand up for that one. I'm not great at that. The humble heart listens more than it speaks. The humble heart uses power and influence to promote and protect others. The humble heart is willing to take a back seat and let others shine. The humble heart also is willing to submit its gifting into the family for the good of everyone. So it's not just the humble heart, the humble person is not just, well, I won't do anything then. No, the humble heart will submit its gifts into the family for the good of everyone. The humble heart is magnanimous. It's big, it's big-hearted, it's warm towards all, it's willing to believe the best about everyone first. The humble heart is willing to accept help from others. 
willing to say, I, I need help. Please help. And listen about that one. We said this a little bit earlier. It takes humility to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. It takes humility to do that. A humble heart to do that. And you might not be a believer here today. And maybe the first thing you need to pray is, God, give me the humility to ask you for help. Give me the humility to ask you for help. I can't free myself from myself, from my past, from guilt and shame, maybe just the confusion. I can't do that. But Jesus, I believe that you can. I'm asking you to help me right now. Maybe that's a prayer you need to pray. Maybe you need to pray that for the very first time. Jesus, help me. I can't do this. That's my confession. I'm, all I can bring to you is all this stuff. Please take it away. Please, humbly I ask you, forgive me. And he willingly does it in that moment. In that moment. How do we respond? Well, God says to us, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. First, to see the beauty of all of that. To see our chance, our fantastic opportunity to demonstrate God's heart to those around us. If we embrace this as a way to live, that we can demonstrate God to those all around us, to change a city that so desperately needs help. But actually, maybe, maybe you are in the position where you're saying, well, I'm just really looking in. I've got more questions. Well, then maybe Alpha's the thing for you. Alpha is a course that millions have done around the world. Come with your questions. Come with your, what about this? What about that? I think this, all those things get lots of time to talk through with people who aren't going to expose you and they're not going to shout back at you, but will listen. And slowly they work their way through something that the Bible says about Jesus. Alpha starts the end of January next year. Why don't you get on the course, find out more about this great God. Thanks for listening.